0: I got a second chance at life. I am not gonna waste it on a big house, a new car every year, and a bunch of friends who want a big house and a new car every year.
1: I can't turn back now. I want you to come with me. That's always been my problem. People think I'm being vulgar when I'm being serious. And they think I'm being serious when I'm being vulgar. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the I Double MP Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we watched a movie this time. We've gone back to 1984. That was a
0: powerful year for movies.
1: It was, and of course we're going to be watching the 1984 vehicle for American funny man Bill Murray.
0: I was not ready for this film.
1: (laughs) We are not talking about Ghostbusters again. No. We're talking about the other 1984 movie starring Bill Murray, released by Columbia Pictures. The Razor's Edge.
0: This is somehow the most Bill Murray film I have ever seen, (laughs) and I didn't know that was quite possible in this way.
1: That is interesting.
0: I, this, this film is just a trip. Literally, (laughs) it is kind of. A travel log film. It's a trip in that sense. So. Yeah,
1: definitely. It spans uh, a, lot of, a lot of territory from the suburbs of Chicago to Paris to India and the Himalayas.
0: And back again.
1: And this is based on the novel by W. Somerset Maugham. And I have to start out with a... Actually, I have to prepare you for something, Ian. Hang on a moment. Take this, Ian.
0: Uh, I have literally just been thrown a piece of paper.
1: I've given Ian a ball of paper. And Ian, you, there's nothing written on that. That's just uh, ammunition. Okay. If I start talking too much about the novel instead of the movie, please just throw that ball of paper at me to get my <laughs> attention and bring me back, because that's the one hazard here is this is one of my favorite novels, or Mom's The Razor's Edge is. And I, it would really take us off the rails if I went too far in talking about the novel or comparing the movie to the novel. So my goal here is to talk about the movie in and of itself, until we get to our final questions.
0: I'm just wondering if I can glance this off of you at the right angle and suddenly get you talking about the 1946 <laughs> film adaptation that was nominated for four Academy Awards.
1: I have never seen that. Oh, I saw this movie back in 1984, or thereabouts, and that got me to read the novel. Loved the novel. I've never seen that Tyrone Power version from the 1940s. I probably should. Maybe yeah, we should. We might need to. But I, I have no basis for saying that. And I am cu- I am, Now that I've watched this movie again, and I, I'm in, at the risk now talking more about the novel, I am curious as to whether that... 1946 version is a better adaptation of the novel than
0: this 1984 version is. Having never heard of this property before and never experienced any aspect of it outside of the film I watched with you just a moment, uh, just a little bit ago, I can't imagine what these other versions are like because this just rang so pure. Like, it was a crisp bell of Bill Murray in some weird ways. Because Bill Murray, for me, has always been an actor who seems like he is aware of a lot more in the world. Like, this is a man who looked into the void, the void looked back, and he learned comedy in that action somehow. So the idea of just giving Bill Murray a contemplative world travel film fits so excellently that i don't know how i could ever i could experience this story without bill murray in that strange way
1: now according to some of the stories around the production of this uh the director of this movie and oh by the way the movie is also written by john bynum the director and bill murray oh yeah but bynum was was talking with people and had for a long time wanted to direct a new remake or a new, a new adaptation of The Razor's Edge. And somebody pointed out that, well, this character is Bill Murray. Oh, <laughs> okay, good. And, and that's kind of where this, this uh, developed. And Bill Murray really got invested in wanting to make this movie. And he made a deal with Columbia Pictures that he would agree to star in Ghostbusters if they would also greenlight... The production of
0: the razor's edge this really is the other side of the coin yeah yeah oh goodness you've got one film in which bill murray faces the concept of existential external threats and then this movie where he deals with existential internal issues really is bill murray versus the outside or the inside of spirituality
1: now, we often dwell on the plot details when we're talking about a movie. I'm not sure that we need to in this, just because the plot is pretty easily sketched out.
0: Man goes to World War I, comes back with PTSD, travels the world to figure out how to deal with PTSD, finds out a lot about people and humanity in doing so, and possibly goes back to where he started, a better person than he left.
1: That's, yeah, that's a pretty good summary. I'll fill in a little more detail. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, 1917. Um, Larry Darrell, that's Bill Murray's character, and his uh, friends like Gray Matcher and others have just graduated college. They live in Illinois, Lake Forest, I think, Illinois, mm-hmm. and they are ready to take on the world, but even though America is not yet in the war in Europe... There are plenty of Americans who want to help out. What they've done is, like other groups have done, they've raised money, bought an ambulance, and they're sending over a couple of people. It's um, Larry and Gray to be ambulance. Was Gray with him? Yeah.
0: Yes. See, I have to check
1: sometimes for my memory. Because
0: Gray was on top of stuff. (laughs) Gray is like, there at the event, talking with people at the ambulance. And our first introduction to Bill Murray's Larry is him wandering through the back door, (laughs) Subtly shoplifting some whiskey and then going to see his girlfriend.
1: <laughs> yeah, at the big 4th uh, of July uh, picnic where they're, they're um, announcing the results of their ambulance fundraiser. And Larry is, he's yeah, he and Gray are going to go over. They'll drive an ambulance for a while. They'll come back. Everybody will be impressed. He'll marry his fiance Isabel, who he's very much in love with and vice versa. And life will go on the way it's supposed to with this little diversion of being over and helping out in the war.
0: This man who immediately, thanks to Bill Murray's skill at playing this kind of character, this man who immediately arrives and you know he has coasted certain things of his life on charisma. This is a man who is so aware of his just friendly personality that that <laughs> is the hammer in which he tackles all the problems of life.
1: Yeah, and he majored in baseball in college. That's what got him through, uh, through college, as he points out yeah. uh, later.
0: I'm slightly athletic and quite charming. Hi. But
1: things go differently over in uh, France than they had any reason to anticipate. I mean, just because of their youth, not because of it was unknown what was going on over there. Uh, but yeah, it's terrible, and they face death and misery, including death of friends and death of people to whom they owe their lives, especially Larry, and uh, you know, people they had just met who were at the big start of their lives, just like uh, Larry and, and Gray are. And that has an impact on Larry. He comes back to Illinois, and he's not in a rush to marry Isabel anymore. He wants to spend time just loafing around, he'll say, but really he wants to study and read and think, as he puts it.
0: He's been slapped very hard with the cold hand of facing your own mortality, and he's returned really wanting to understand why. Why? So that's he, a big yeah. question to ask.
1: Absolutely. He has seen death. He has seen the death of someone who died to save his own life, save Larry's life. And now he wants to know, well, I've seen enough death. What is life about? And he goes off to France and lives in France for a couple of years, saying he'll be back and they'll get married. And once he's in France for a while, he has no plans to come back.
0: Well, he goes to France agreeing that, oh, yes, he'll, he'll stay in the nice parts of France, the, the family nose and all that and we immediately cut to uh he's living in a cheap apartment (laughs) and lowering a basket down to the nearby uh food vendor to put some bread and cheese and he brings it up to a room that's just a small place that is barely person livable size in some ways and more of it has been filled with books than the room wants to really deal with which is a wonderful shorthand <laughs> to, this man is devouring knowledge in the search of an answer to a question.
1: And you've raised something else in those references that we have to mention another character in this. And that character is Uncle Elliot, Elliot Templeton, played by Denholm Elliot. And he is Isabel's uncle. And Isabel comes from a well-to-do family. They're in that early 20th century American level of society Where they have to work for a living, as things like stockbrokers, for example, or other business people. But they are making tremendous amounts of money through that. And Uncle Elliot isn't a businessman himself. He lives most of his time in Paris. And he has other sources of income, which they never get into in the movie. But he is all about knowing and dealing with the, the proper people in society. And he's going to make all the introductions for uh, Larry so he can have a, the, the the right crossing and meet the right people on the ship and have the, have the right friends in Paris so he can have a proper season in Paris as a young man, get that out of his system, then come back and marry his niece,
0: uh, Isabel. He's always a little awkward with his get that out of his system aspect. Yes. And how... Sinister, they put the twist on the phrase of the people he knows in Paris, <laughs> increases as the movie goes. The amount of honest legitimacy and shiny polish to the life that this man leads kind of shifts over this as our main character <laughs> like learns more of the world and returns. It's not from his perspective, but I always feel like the camera is following him in some amount of its understanding of what it's looking at. But that kind of gives a bit of an overview of this character. He's he's not an antagonistic force, but he's a... He's a contrasting image. Yeah, he's a of, contrasting force. That's the right phrase. Yeah,
1: of what an American of this time and, and level of society is supposed to be. What they're not supposed to be, at least according to Uncle Elliot, is working as a fish packer in the wrong part of Paris... And scraping by just enough to pay for his meager lodgings, like you described, Ian, and as many books as he can get his hands on, and reading and studying all, all the time, and having no interest in going back to America to marry Isabel.
0: Which does really put Isabel in a odd situation that plays in a lot to how this story goes.
1: And... Larry and Isabel eventually do officially break things off when she visits Paris. He's perfectly happy to marry her if she will join him in the kind of life that he's now chosen. And they can can be poor, but they can travel and think and have a life of the mind and meet interesting writers and teachers and not be worried about clothes and society and everything else. And she, that's not the life she wants. and That's not kind of what she signed up with, so to speak. So she agrees to break it off with him. And he instead starts traveling and getting other jobs, and he goes to work at a coal mine.
0: Where, where he kind of immediately finds, like, a bunch of other people who are coal miners who spend all their time reading, and they, like—it's it, this—at well, least one person.
1: Yeah, he meets this one guy. He meets his coal mine Yoda.
0: Yeah, coal mine Yoda is exactly the phrase. But it's something about, like, this discussion very quickly becomes a list of the other books he needs to read.
1: Right. You've you've read the Upanishads, haven't you? You've got to read the Upanishads. Now I won't lend you my copy. Okay, yeah, I will, because you saved my life.
0: (laughs) And this kind of ends with the, you ever been to India? You should go to India. What's in India? And I I don't even remember. I just remember that interaction. (laughs) I don't remember the phrase, but it kind of moves very quickly to, he's traveling there.
1: So, yeah, he goes to India without any plan or anything. No. And he, again, stumbles into meeting someone who can— and they have this cool conversation about the river and washing dishes being a religious experience. And I can take you to a better church, which is up in the mountains. And they travel for days and days and days, at least, into the Himalayas, where Larry's new friend brings him to this uh, Buddhist lamasary. Introduces him to the uh, the the Lama and the community there, and Larry apparently stays there for a few years studying.
0: Yeah, he like he gets just he gets into this. It's his sort of thing. It's his sort of question answering. There, the best scene in the movie shows up during some of this, and right. I'm, I don't want to say exactly what he does, but because in some ways that <laughs> reveal was excellent. But yeah, he, there there there's this like level of okay. Wait, detach <laughs> myself from th- the way I was thinking about thinking.
1: But eventually, he has learned what he came to learn and decides to go back to civilization, making the point that, that I think is often well made that it's easy to be a holy man on the top of a mountain. He wants to be among people and live now that he knows something about what living is about.
0: This is kind of the, the farthest point in which the yo yo that is Larry. goes out on its string, because he then kind of does his life back in reverse again. He goes back through India and into Paris, and we get all the story through that, mostly in Paris at that point.
1: Right, where he reconnects with Uncle Elliot and with Isabel and Grey Maturin, uh, his former fiancé and his best friend, who are now married, by the way. They were, in some ways, a better fit than Isabel and Larry were. Yeah. Uh, At least they wanted the same things in life. But a few very important and terrible things have happened in the meantime to the friends back in America and Paris while Larry's been off in India. One is the stock market has crashed. Oh yeah, which means that Gray Matcher and stockbroker father is now deceased, and Gray and Isabel are have, have uh, gone bankrupt essentially, and that's why they're living in Paris, being looked after by Uncle Elliot, who avoided that, and also their school friend Sophie got married, had a baby. Actually, they had just had the baby before um, Gray and Larry went off to war, and then Sophie's husband and son were killed in an accident. Which so Sophie's kind of a completely different person now not really caring whether she lives or dies in many ways and she's now in paris living a very terrible and dangerous
0: life and this is where like it feels almost like a completely different movie for a moment we've talked about movies in movies before but this whole other story where now world educated bill murray tries to help these old friends feels like a very different film at times. The travel log ends and the, the guy who's out of place deals with the problems no one else can story comes through, and it's just, there's something a little bit more proper rom-com in a weird way about this.
1: Yeah, he's sort of come back as the superhero. Yeah. Who uses his magical yogi powers to, uh, to cure gray of his recurring migraine headaches who romances and in the so doing saves from a life of addiction and and prostitution Sophie to the point where they're going to get married and it's like no I'm just gonna walk in and make everybody's life better just by being me
0: my quirkiness is rehab (laughs) hi (laughs) yeah that whole thing it's like we never see someone else show him how to do focus techniques to create meditation hypnotism or how there's aspects of the way he acts that feels more like the guy who wandered in and stole whiskey yeah yeah but now it's like instead of stealing whiskey i'll steal your problems and throw them away (laughs) for you okay i'm just like
1: confuse and charm that migraine right out of you
0: exactly which is somehow still very bill murray this yeah, was still a very Bill, Bill Murray-like style and character aspect, but that transition is kind of brisk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and without going into too much detail as to how things then end up, things don't end up well, and ultimately, Larry just embraces the lesson of, all you can do is live life but none of what actually happens matters. Seems to be what he actually, it's literally what he tells Isabel at the end. That don't get attached to what can or can't happen or does or doesn't happen, because it ultimately doesn't matter. It's a very nihilistic view that he espouses at the very end, and yet it's a nihilistic view that does not seem to make him an unhappy person.
0: Yeah, it's it's optimistic nihilism. And I never thought of that combo in that specific way (laughs) huh but you can see how this is
1: a story of different lives and different motivations and different desires conflicting with one another but it it really is following almost entirely the path that larry darrell has taken throughout life and to um to change and learn what he learns And I can see where that would be a very interesting and inspiring story to want to adapt and to want to portray for, um, you know, an interesting and thoughtful actor in his 30s, especially one who was most known as the weird, funny guy, but who I think his later career has shown that Bill Murray is really quite a thinker.
0: Oh, yeah, that I've seen the Christmas special. I've seen the other stuff he's in, and this didn't. Surprise me. (laughs) Completely veering off, if anyone were to ever try to make a film or TV adaptation of any of the Persona series of games, I would demand Bill Murray be involved because he could play this mix of strange slice of life meets pureed psych textbook <laughs> that completely generates that entire series of game properties. He can do that so well. That's what he's doing here in that sense.
1: Yeah, I can see that working. <laughs> so I didn't know if, if you were aware of this movie. I was pretty sure you hadn't seen it. So I was really eager to show it to you because it did make an impact on me.
0: I'd never even heard of this before. Which... It being such a fine example as we're just describing of his work, I'm surprised by that. But at the same time, this is a very historical period at times piece. It is very much set when it is set for its interaction with World War I and the Great Depression stock market crash, and those things are so pivotal points which affect larry directly or his counterpoint of all the people who didn't go to war with him it's kind of a there's two sides of the scale of watching what happens and larry's on one multiple people are on the other but things affect both of them historically and i get the feeling like the fact that this has a historical bend to it is what actually might keep it from popping up in popular culture it might get pushed off to the side as a a, hist- a film with history elements, and that kind of means it, it disappears to some folk for that reason.
1: I think that that is part of it. It's, and it's a very 80s period movie as well. The filmmaking, it's, you, you would never mistake this as, for a movie made in any other period than you know, 1984 or um, you know, 85. And it's also not the kind of thing that people are looking for in a quote-unquote Bill Murray movie. So it wasn't tremendously popular, didn't receive a, didn't find a really big audience at the time. I think it's gotten a little bit more recognition, but it's still not very highly regarded.
0: People at the time would have been looking for something that is much more his SNL or uh, his Ghostbusters appearances. Yeah. They're not ready for contemplative Bill Murray in something that looks a little bit more like Somewhere in Time stylistically.
1: Yeah, nobody's that eager to see Bill Murray in a Somerset Mom adaptation in the early 80s. So I, I have a, a tough time with this movie because it really struck a chord with me when I first saw it, and I wanted to like it more than I did, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it did get me reading lots of stuff. This was one of those movies that sent me on a a reading jag where i read the novel i won't talk about the novel yet i see you brandishing the paper ball Uh, i read the novel like i said the novel is now one of my favorites read the upanishads read some of the other stuff that's referenced here and i appreciated the fact that the book got me to read a lot of excuse me that the movie got me to read a lot of what i read and the more i read the more i realized how lacking the movie was and how many missteps and bewildering choices the movie made and this is not necessarily referring to the novel but they have him going to a what is clearly a buddhist lamassery in the himalayas where the lama quotes the upanishads which are not buddhist they're late vedic or hindu and it's not totally unreasonable because there's a lot of influence from the – we need an intro for Matthew talks about literature, theology, whatever, the way we have when you talk about science and math.
0: Yeah, we found, we found <laughs> the counterpoint. I'm just – I'm delighted.
1: There's lots of, of evidence that, that Upanishads did have an influence on Buddhism, which came a good bit later. But still, I don't think this Lama would be quoting the Upanishads in English. Except for the fact that that's where the title of the story comes from, um, and all these things, there's a general kind of generic orientalism in this.
0: Yeah, where that is- we're
1: not going to be very specific. It's just he went off to India with a capital I and was taught and enlightened. Never mind the details.
0: And I, in in this, in a similar weird way, his Paris, France, has a. A stylistic veneer, where the fancy is an elegant fancy of x level and his the working man's is still somehow full of enough shorthand. you must be in paris right <laughs> all the time that it especially when it's him uh when they're redoing the- the building. And he is like performing montage therapy on his his new girlfriend on his girlfriend here. It's like, uh, this is really generic France in some weird way. This is a distilled essence of France that is being marketed in in this, in that sense.
1: And they also kind of make him a very generic American seeker in France where you know they're I think there's a lot where they're trying to evoke that you know, 1920s lost generation Hemingway and Fitzgerald kind of vibe but also they make him as much a 50s beatnik as anything else with his you know leather jacket and his motorcycle they can't quite decide what world they want Larry to live in
0: I am rebel <laughs> capitalized <laughs> italicized font <laughs> like hi <laughs>
1: But um so yeah there's lots of that kind of shiny filmmaking and generic markers for what I want you to know about where we are which robs it of a certain amount of depth I think
0: in some weird way though that's accurate I mean just in trying to look up something about this movie and the previous movie and the book There is a lot of discussion about the fact that this was presented in the novel as this kind of semi-true story, possibly, because who is the main character based on? And the, I've just had to hit myself (laughs) with a paper ball because somehow I went down that road first. I was going to (laughs) say. But the fact that it is this kind of flat generic diversion at times is somehow fitting based on the content.
1: And I'll talk more about that later while I'll I'll give myself license in our final questions. But I think one of the things that helps save this for me is the performances. Oh, yeah. I think that all of the we've talked about Bill Murray, of course, and Denham Elliott playing Uncle Elliot. But we've also got Teresa Russell playing Sophie and Catherine Hicks as uh, Isabel, James Keach as Gray Maturin. And I think those are all really good. And I think they really care about the movie they're in. I do feel sometimes like they are in different movies, mm-hmm. everything from the pronunciation of a character's name to the tone that they find. They, there's The performances don't come together, and I don't know if that's the direction or something else, but taking each performance on its own, I think they're all very good performances.
0: They just don't seem... There are times in which the performances feel green screened next to each other because they're on different wavelengths. They're not giving the <laughs> same energy in the same scene. I'm going to actually shout out the one performance in this, which was excellent, which was Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray's older brother playing Piedmont, the guy who dies in the war kind of pushes bill murray's character to have the entire journey that has to be done so properly and believably because it is this impetus for the entire change in the film and it's the fact that his brother is acting this so well that he is elevating his younger brother's performance (laughs) into this believable thing that will last the film That's good. That is
1: a great, great point, Ian. Uh, That that is really a terrific supporting performance. That is over the top in every single way that it's supposed to be over the top. This is a character who you can see is like consciously being over the top for good reason. Because of the things he needs to get these green recruit ambulance drivers to understand. And yeah, he really does light the fuse that uh, burns for the whole rest of the movie. You could have,
0: the fact that Bill Murray can be this kind of wise snarker is something that helps carry the movie through, but you could have a more bland actor in the position of Larry. You need a very strong impetus moment there, so that was excellent.
1: Yeah, in some ways, um, Piedmont has to make a bigger impression and cut a bigger figure than Larry does. And every time I watch this movie, there are scenes I love, there are bits of these performances that I love, and I keep wanting it to come together, and it always seems to not quite be the sum of its parts.
0: I feel like there's so much to talk about, but in some <laughs> ways that's the always the issue with talking about anything that is deep and philosophical, because it's really easy just to slide down into talking about the things it tries to talk about. And this one might talk about those very directly at times, compared to even some films. So maybe that's part of what we're running into.
1: Well, I think maybe we should ask our, what are usually our final questions, because that's going to give us ways to talk about other reactions we had to the movie. Yeah. So it's a movie, so our usual question is screen or no screen.
0: Oh. I'm so conflicted on this.
1: Oh, it's not just me. Okay.
0: I think I'm going to have to come down on screen, but it's by just a little bit. This movie was weird, unexpected, and not an unpleasant viewing experience. But you, when we didn't watch it immediately before recording, we gave her a little bit of time in between. When we finished, I just stood up and I walked away. <laughs> Because I wasn't done processing this film till like mid my shift at work the next day <laughs> where I felt like it hit me like, okay, that's what I thought of that. This took a while, but yeah. you hear that like easy bake oven ding as your brain finally finishes going through <laughs> everything you just watched.
1: Yep. And, you know, watching this at, uh, at about 19 years old. That was about six months of trying to process oh, this movie for me.
0: I, this is another instance of the, I keep learning that the stuff I, I've encountered and gone, huh, you somehow ran into like way <laughs> earlier than that even, Well, which was, explains plenty.
1: I was a huge fan of Ghostbusters. Like I said, I went back and watched Ghostbusters time after time because I was analyzing the story and thought it was so well-constructed, and oh, it was another movie- not only starring Bill Murray, but he also helped write it. I'll watch that. Whoa, that did different things to my mind than Ghostbusters had. Going to take a while with this.
0: Two tickets for that Bill Murray movie. Which one? Uh, wait. What?
1: <laughs> um, I have a complex answer to the screen or no screen question. Okay, I'm going to say no screen. Oh, don't wow. screen. And I'm going to say that with the no, with the, the knowledge and intention that anybody who is going to disregard my suggestion and watch it anyway is the person who should watch it. Whoa. <laughs> if you're just looking for entertainment, no, this is not that good a movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. In some ways I'm thinking screen because I'm assuming you're a person who's watching other Bill Murray things. And this should be added to that library of things you're watching. If you're going to watch more Bill Murray content overall, add this to it. But absolutely, if you're looking at it from that, like, who needs this story? It's the person who's going to ignore the don't watch this story.
1: Huh. So that leaves us with our our other movie question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace?
0: What is even revive for this story? I don't know. Is it just like the further adventures of Larry? Well,
1: at the end of the movie, Larry's going to go back to America. He doesn't say anything about what he's going to do there. Maybe he's going to find another job packing fish or something. So I suppose you could tell a story about Larry in America. Yeah. In, um, you know, the late 1930s. I think you could. I don't know what that story would be. Larry doesn't seem like he's striving to learn anything or necessarily do anything more.
0: It feels like if you give any more story to Larry, you wind up somehow either undoing or implying something more to the story Larry had than was there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose you could do prequels. Those can be technically revivals. So you can have the early adventures of Piedmont... The rough and tough American ambulance driver in France.
0: I mean, that's always going to end sad, but <laughs> yes.
1: Or the college baseball career of Larry Darryl.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I I, you could kind of get away with other stories where Larry shows up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have- an anthology series yeah. where Larry
1: just sort of drifts in and out of people's lives. Just have- touched by uh, whatever Larry is. G-
0: give me a detective story. But have one of the strange characters involved in the case be Larry, with Larry's odd charms and such, and he's he knows information because he's an observant guy who's got this kind of worldly understanding, and he's sad <laughs> that this person is gone, but... He's a little more chilled than it makes people awkward about it, and, huh? Like I kind of want him to be part of the people gathered in a room later, while an a- the Agatha Christie character <laughs> explains how it was done. But that's not a story about Larry anymore. That's Larry as world setting for other things.
1: And I have to step back a little bit to think that you know, if we're talking revival, we're talking about the same continuity. As this movie. And I'm not sure I can imagine someone else playing Bill Murray's Larry Darrell. other than Bill Murray. Yeah. So could we have is there anything in the story of an aging Larry Darrell, either in America or back in Paris or back in India or or whatever he is doing with his life uh, some 40
0: years later. That's something to consider. What happens when someone else travels to go meet Larry? How does Larry respond to
1: that? (laughs) Is Larry going to become someone else's teacher? Yeah. Is there a young Larry Daryl?
0: There's potential there, but maybe that's more of a continuation of the story this is a story of than it is this story. Yeah, right.
1: I mean, that would make Larry. That would be what the late sixties, around ninety. Uh, if we're talking forty years after uh, the the thirties when the the movie ends, yeah, is Larry suddenly a noteworthy figure in the the hippie era interest in Eastern philosophy? A lot of weird possibilities. I don't think Larry Darrell would be ter- terribly interested in such a role, but who knows?
0: Yeah, huh. So, you know, I was,
1: exp- I was planning to quickly dismiss the idea of a, uh, of a revival
0: of any kind, mm-hmm.
1: but, you know, there are possibilities.
0: There's possibility there. I feel like there's more possibility there than there is in Reboot somehow.
1: Now, given that this is an adaptation of a novel, I think a true reboot would essentially be another adaptation of the novel. Yeah. Okay, and now I have I've given myself permission to talk about the novel a bit. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. I might do another Patreon special where I dwell on the the differences between the movie and the novel. Okay. Like I did for The Thin Man. But for now, I'll point out that the novel's pretty big and sprawling. And it's not mostly about Larry Darrell. Wait, what? Larry Darrell is an important character in the novel. But most of the novel is about these different approaches to life and different levels of society in america and paris at that time and an exam an english author examining these aspects of american and french culture and society oh and it's at least as much about isabel and gray and uncle elliot and D- uh, william somerset Maugham, the novelist is a character in the novel a fictionalized version of himself which is the kind of thing that has led some to speculate, was this a true story? And is Larry Darrell a real person? And I think those people are way off base. But Larry Darrell is this person who was engaged to Isabel and was friends with Isabel and Gray when they were young. And who who comes in, leaves the novel and comes back in and has these long conversations with mom about what he's been doing. And in some ways, he's like a a spotlight that sweeps through every once in a while to show in sharper relief the other parts of society that the novel's as much about. And again, I don't want to go too far into this except to say I would like to see a more complete and faithful adaptation of the novel. I don't think you could do it in a feature film. I absolutely think that Apple TV Plus or um, or, or Netflix or CBS or somebody could finance and find the right people to write and produce a a TV miniseries or you know, was, ten, I, 10 episode uh, series or something that really dives into this novel. I, I'd like to see that.
0: I knew you were going to say miniseries. We have kind of shown before our our love of the miniseries format <laughs> in some ways. It. It gives you the benefit of TV, but also the benefit of film at the same time, to some extent. But definitely, if, from your description, this sounds like a miniseries give an episode a character, maybe, and have kind of the story of Larry being a cutaway sequence in each of those. So if you watch the entire series through, you wind up with Larry's story intersecting everything if you watch the show, individual episode by episode, you wind up with the important section of each person's life at a time, and it changes which is the focus character as it moves through time going forward. That
1: kind of okay, works. Yeah, yeah. You can. I would say there is an importance to the chronology, but you can also have, have give greater focus to to different characters. As you go through that chronology, yeah, there are times when Grey is the character who it makes sense to uh, to pay attention to because things are changing for him during that time, and then maybe he is in the background of somebody else's story five years later when someone else is dealing with something that is changing them and forcing them to make choices.
0: One of this, One of these things where if episode five is following this character, you might go back to watch episodes one through four now that you have a clearer picture of them and understanding who they are. <laughs> You'll rewatch the series up to that point because they've been there the entire time. They just weren't the focus character. You could kind of make that work. Once ironic to the name, it's a very thin razor's edge kind of line to get that right. Yes, and I could really easily see someone mucking this up and messing up how to do that, even with that format in tow.
1: It's a certain kind of, of writing that's very uh, very tough to do and mom is good at it, which is one of the things that makes him as good as he is. You've got to show compassion for these characters while at the same time being merciless about examining who they are, what makes them tick, where they're going wrong. And that's a hard balancing act. And yet he does it. I'm not sure that the movie achieves that. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely come down on, on reboot. I think there's a lot of Terrific material here. And if there is a, was a, that kind of a reboot, I hope they would pay attention to this 1984 movie adaptation and draw from that some of the things it did really well, some of the visuals it did really well. Oh, and I have to mention the score for the, oh uh, the movie is really, really good.
0: That is an excellent score. That, it's, an, it's another one of those scores that never leapt out at me as here's the moment where we highlight the music but it was very much a oh wow this little scene these transitions from thing to thing is tied together with this audio element very smoothly that is that is a, a clean line of audio glue sticking piece to piece
1: and it's not a, a, a John Williams score that is always out in front and hitting you over the head because that's what a John Williams score is supposed to do. Oh, and this score was by another person whose name I'm going to butcher Jack Nietzsche. N I T Z S C H E. But this is a score that every once in a while while watching this movie, I will become aware of the music and I will realize oh, that's why this scene has had such a big impression on me. It's because this music has been acting upon me along with these uh, visuals and this performance and some really stunning visuals too. So I I do hope that if there were a remake of this, they would look to this movie to get some inspiration, not because I want a remake of this movie, but because I want someone to, to pick up on what the movie did well.
0: I'm hoping that if someone decides to make one more concurrently to this, they cast Bill Murray somewhere in the background <laughs> to appear. Oh, I I really hope so. Oh yeah. You
1: know, maybe he's beyond it at this point. There was a point at which Bill Murray could have played a really good Elliot Templeton.
0: Oh yeah. Couldn't he? He could have.
1: As the you know the the very society and class conscious American in Paris, trying to show off his wealth without looking like he's showing off his wealth.
0: He doesn't always play it, but there's something that can have that slight bit of terrifying, vague, sinister aspect of Bill Murray playing buttoned up and straight. Oh, yes. Uh, to the point there, it's like, oh, this is not how I know you. I'm, I'm a little disturbed knowing that you can do this this well.
1: I know this isn't the first time that this kind of thing has occurred to us, but I have to mention it since it just did. Could you see a Wes Anderson adaptation of The Razor's Edge?
0: Yes, but for some reason it's stop-motion Wes Anderson instead of live-action Wes Anderson. (laughs) Just to add that level of unreality to the way it's depicting its story.
1: I don't know. I could...
0: I could see that work, though.
1: I could see him doing that. I could see this being something that would get him to rein in his Wes Anderson-ness a little bit, but still have that weird insight that he's got.
0: Maybe that's why this movie didn't shock me quite as much as I expected, because I have watched more more Bill Murray in Wes Anderson than I have Bill Murray in comedy, (laughs) which means that my idea of a Bill Murray tone is different.
1: Now I wouldn't want full-on Wes Anderson, you know, cutaway shot, let me show you my lamissary. But (laughs) I would want that kind of that balance of thoughtfulness and and weird absurdist insight. I think that could work.
0: Oh, you don't want the lamissary play, (laughs) place. It's like one of those. It's like one of those Lego sets with the little hinge on the side, so you can flip open the building. Come on!
1: I was thinking about that the other day after we watched this. <laughs> Isn't there a website where you can suggest Lego sets?
0: Yes, there is. I would
1: like the whole Razor's Edge collection. Oh no! Where you've got the Lamassu, you've got Elliot's mansion and his townhouse in Paris, and you've got the Paris nightclubs. You've got the the World War One battlefield, all these in Lego. That would work.
0: The the, the little uh, Larry Fishpacker minifigure, <laughs> the little little fish in each in each clip hand.
1: <laughs> oh, that good. would be cool. Oh goodness. So, yeah, I think we are we're we're kind of divided on the screen or no screen. Yeah, but uh, I but I'm I'm gonna say reboot.
0: I'm not sure anywhere where I land on the Revive or the reboot aspect, and it's it's just barely into the the screen aspect for me. If you're already watching the other things he's in, add this to the list. Don't neglect it.
1: It's certainly an interesting contrast to most of 1980s uh, Bill Murray. I mean, we've watched three Bill Murray movies so far, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and The Razor's Edge. There's some range shown in there.
0: There is range aplenty. My goodness.
1: Well, I'm glad you uh, at least enjoyed the experience and that it made you think, Ian. Oh, yeah. And it was fun showing this to you. It was fun watching the movie again. It's, it's a movie that I keep coming back to partly because I want the experience to be different, and it never quite is, but it's still an interesting process. So we will be back in a couple of weeks with more uh, interesting movies from the 20th century, or at least movies that are interesting to experience watching, we hope. <laughs> or TV shows or record albums or... Any number of other things.
0: Media in general. That's right. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online?
1: Well, you can find me most places as ByMatthewPorter. So you can go to ByMatthewPorter.com to find links to uh, what I'm doing, but you can also find me directly on Twitter as ByMatthewPorter or Twitch uh, as ByMatthewPorter. And Ian, where can people find you?
0: I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting and on Twitch as item live.
1: And you can find the podcast itself on Twitter at IMMPcast. Or you can find us at the website, immproject.com. And that's where you'll find links to all of our back episodes, but also a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, Find out what did you think of this movie or what other movies did you like that were departures for, uh, for your favorite actors? Uh, You'll also find a link there to our contact page. You can contact us there and to our Twitter and a link to our Patreon. If you're able to support us there, that's terrific. Uh, That'll help us keep going with this podcast. And also members of our Patreon get additional audio content and members of the IMMP Movie Club on Patreon will get a a periodic shipment of a DVD of, of one kind or another. Always and.
0: something interesting.
1: <laughs> That's Yeah, we won't promise it's good, but we will aim to make it interesting, and it'll be something that we're planning to do in the future on the podcast so you can watch along with us. So, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, we'll be back.
0: In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got me square in the chest with the paper.
0: <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs>